Uh, good evening, everybody. I haven't met all of you. Uh, my name's Andrew Errington, and it's great to uh, be together uh, to look at the Word of God. But let me begin by asking you a question. The question is this, how real is your Jesus? That is, how real is Jesus as you imagine him and think about him? If you're not a Christian, the Jesus you don't believe in, how real is he? If you are a Christian, the Jesus you worship, how real is he? That is, how actually kind of connected with reality is he? ask this because I think many people, both those who do and don't believe in Jesus, have a kind of unreal picture of him. Uh, We think of Jesus as a kind of divine spiritual figure, whoever he was, floating around saying divine spiritual things, but who didn't really do the same kinds of things that we did, who didn't really live the way we do, who, who wasn't that connected with reality, who wasn't actually that human. But the part of Mark's gospel before us this evening reveals the mistakenness of this picture for what it is. This evening, as we look together at this incredible moment when Jesus enters Jerusalem, what I hope we'll see is that Jesus is far more real, far more interesting, far more exciting than we kind of remember to think. Uh, Let me just refresh us on where we're up to in Mark's Gospel. As we've gone through this book of the Bible over the past months, nice to be able to say months there, isn't it? Um, We've seen the story building towards a climax. Earlier on in Mark, and particularly in the first seven chapters, um, we saw Jesus constantly telling people to keep quiet, to not kind of tell who he was because he needed to manage the news and he wanted to be able to fulfill his mission on his terms. However, all along, it was clear that the aim wasn't to keep quiet forever. And so in the past few weeks, as we've looked at those central chapters of Mark, we've seen that as Jesus begins to head towards Jerusalem, he starts to speak more plainly about what's happening and who he is. And as we've neared Jerusalem, there's been a kind of sense of rising tension, like music rising to a crescendo. And now, in the passage before us this evening, Jesus reaches Jerusalem and he does so with a bang. Uh, It's a long passage. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for reading it so well. Um, But don't worry, it's not too long a sermon. Uh, Because it all holds together as one. What we have here is three days of dramatic confrontation in Jerusalem. You can see the transitions between days 1 and 2 and 2 and 3 in verses 11 to 12 and 19 to 20. If you've got a Bible, it's on page 1003. It'd be great to have Mark chapter 11 open. Three days. And what we see during these three days of confrontation is Jesus doing a number of powerful symbolic actions. Now, because we don't live in the same time and culture as Jesus did, it's actually going to take us a little bit of work to understand those symbols. Uh, Because they're symbols that would have made a lot of sense and been kind of obvious back then, but are a bit more opaque for us now. But it's worth the effort. Because when we understand what's really going on here, we get this great window into who Jesus really was. So come with me, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Day 1. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's walked a long way. 
And now, when he's on the Mount of Olives, he decides he's had it with walking. Uh, He sends two disciples to get a young donkey. Why does he do this now? Jerusalem is visible from the Mount of Olives. Uh, It's actually only a few kilometres away. If you want to know what it's like, ask Roger Bray. He's been there, he's stood there. And Jesus, as we'll see in the next few days, well, in the text, we're not going to be here for a few days, he, he can go back and forth to Bethany, which is on the Mount of Olives, really easily. They're almost there, right? More than that, it looks like he's planned this. When he sends the disciples ahead, they, something, they, he's planned something. They're going to meet somebody who knows what's going on, right? He's set it up in advance, I think. It's not magic. I think he's talked to those guys in advance or sent messengers so that they know to give them the donkey. What's he doing? Well, the answer is he's doing something deliberately symbolic. Let me show you a passage from the Old Testament book of Zechariah. It's going to come up on the screen. Um, it's going to, yes, there it is. Praise God. It's a famous passage about the coming of the king, okay? Uh, This is a passage which Jesus and everybody there would have known. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. This is from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What Jesus is doing here, you see, by going and getting a donkey in order to enter Jerusalem, is deliberately and obviously applying this passage to himself. And the crowds get it, right? We can move from that passage because it's back in the text. The crowds get it, right? They shout out, where is it? Verse Nine, they shouted, Hosanna, which means, save us, Lord. Along with parts of Psalm 118, which we read before, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're acclaiming Jesus as the king. The king coming to rescue God's people. The king the Old Testament had spoken of. The king Israel had been waiting for. They're greeting him, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Just like Zechariah had said. Now Mark tells us in verse 11 that after this Jesus went in and he went up to the temple and then he looked around at everything. But because it was late, he went back to Bethany for the night. It's an interesting detail, isn't it? From what comes next, you see, it's clear that what he was doing there is planning his attack. He was seeing what was going on and planning his attack because in the morning he returned and made a mess. Day two. The second day begins with a weird horticultural moment. Or at least that's what it seems like to us, doesn't it? Verses 12 to 14, Jesus is hungry. Ah, fig tree goes to check. Not the season for figs. No figs. No surprise. Curse it. I have a fig tree, uh, which is also in leaf, but has no figs. Actually, I've talked about this before, and somebody gave me some advice. Is that person here? The advice about getting figs? Anyway, I've had conflicting advice. Maybe you can talk to me afterwards. But, you know, I don't go cursing it when I'm hungry, okay? I don't think it's doing it as a personal affront to me, my fig tree. But there's more going on here than Jesus just being grumpy. But we need to wait to find out what it is. Mark's doing what he often does here, is he's sandwiched one story between the two parts of another. Um, Although I think it just happened that way. 
But suffice it to say, Jesus intends the fig tree as some kind of symbol. Wait for it. Okay, he gets to Jerusalem again, and this time he goes straight in and, and messes things up. Verse 15, have a look at it there. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What's this all about? We can actually easily miss what Jesus is doing here. But in his context, it's hard to imagine a more profoundly challenging symbolic action. Think about it like this. Imagine somebody who'd been loudly and boldly proclaiming that the market and the economic system in Australia were corrupt. Imagine that person went into the stock exchange and and ran up and they pulled out all the power cables to the stock boards and and it just went down. I don't know why I made that noise. I don't know if it would make that noise, but you know what I mean. It, It would go down. He pushed people out of the way and shouted out about it. Now, it wouldn't go down for long. Security would get rid of the guy, they'd plug the cables back in, there'd be backups. But the system would be disrupted for a moment. And it'd be a symbol. It would just stop for a moment. Jesus is doing something like that. He's not just complaining that this is a religious place, people shouldn't be buying or selling. No, the buying and selling in the temple was part of how the whole system worked. People had to come into the temple area and buy doves and exchange money in order to offer their sacrifices and go about the normal religious processes. And what Jesus does is disrupt the system. Now, yeah, it probably would have been set up again fairly quickly, but that's not the point. He made a point. He symbolically brings the whole temple sacrifice system to a halt even if it's just for a moment. And he explains why he's doing this by quoting a combination of two Old Testament passages, really perfectly chosen. We need to understand them, and so I want to show them, you them in their original context. The first is from Isaiah chapter 56. It's on the screen. Isaiah says, Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is from the prophet Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, speaking about the beautiful future God has for his people many years before Jesus, Isaiah is writing. And it's a great picture of a time when not just Israel, but the Gentiles as well, will come and offer sacrifices to God. When the temple will be a house of prayer for all nations. That's the goal. But several hundred years later, Jesus says that goal has been ruined. Instead, they've turned God's temple into a den of robbers. Now that quote, den of robbers, that actually comes from the second uh, passage Jesus quotes. It's Jeremiah chapter 7. It's on the screen. Uh, Let me read this verse in its context. Jeremiah is speaking for God and denouncing 
the temple of his day, and he says, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe? Safe? To do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Can you hear that? The anger in God's voice there. Thanks, PowerPoint person. Jesus' words here are a massive criticism, a really powerful criticism of the whole direction the temple system and its leaders have taken Israel. Jesus is saying they have failed to do what God intended. Intended. Instead of being a house of prayer for all nations, they're promoting violence and evil, revolutionaries and robbers. By turning over the tables in the temple, Jesus is denouncing the whole system. He's symbolizing God's judgment and his curse on it. Which is why the chief priests and the teachers of the law decide they've got to kill him. Because they get it. They get what he's saying here. That what he's saying is that they and everything they stand for have become corrupt and worthless in God's sight. And this brings us back to the fig tree. Because this is actually the same symbol Jesus intended the fig tree, the same thing that, that, that Jesus intended the fig tree to symbolize as well. Um, in verse 19 there, they go home and then in the next morning, day 3, verse 20, they come back to Jerusalem and the fig tree has withered. Now, Jesus responds with a comment about prayer, which I'm sorry to say I'm going to have to skip over tonight. But let's just make sure we've understood the fig tree. Right next to the passage Jesus quoted about the den of robbers from Jeremiah, so in, in the book of Jeremiah, right next to, in the next chapter from that passage about the den of robbers are these words, which are in our Old Testament reading. They're on the PowerPoint. I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, there will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. The fig tree, you see, was for Jesus a, a perfect symbol of how Jerusalem and its leaders had failed, failed to bear fruit, failed to fulfill God's promise to them. And so he cursed it as a symbol of God's judgment on Jerusalem and its leaders. Like his action in the temple, this was a symbol of their coming destruction. Well, that leads us actually to the rest of day three, because that mention of giving their, what I have given them will be taken away from them is just where Jesus goes in chapter 12. But before we get there, there's more action. In verse 27 there, chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus is challenged by the scribes and the chief priests and the teachers of, and the elders. That is all the heavyweights. And they say, by what authority are you doing these things? It's not a surprising question really, is it? Who gives you the right, they're saying. But Jesus knows that they don't believe for a second that there is actually an answer to that question. It's not a real question. They just want to make a point, and they want to find a reason to kill him. And so he answers them by this line about John the Baptist and whether he was a true prophet or not. 
And it's a clever response. Because they can't answer his question without getting in a pickle. You see them worrying about it in verse 31. Oh, if we say this, then we're stuffed. And if we say this, then we're stuffed. But it's also a clever response because it's, it's in a way, it is an answer to their question. You see, Jesus is kind of saying, well, I'm doing this by the same authority John was doing his work. He's making it clear that he thinks the answer is, I'm doing this by heaven's authority. But he's not saying it outright because that would be all they need to get him killed. Yet, there's no disguising the conflict, is there? And so in chapter 12, the last part of our passage this evening, verses 1 to 12, Jesus tells a parable that just brings everything out into the open. Let's have a look at it together. Verse 1. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, but they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. And then Jesus concludes that story by explaining what the outcome of all this will be. Verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. See, the meaning of this story is not meant to be that difficult to get. The man who plants the vineyard is God. The vineyard is his people, Israel. The tenants are Israel's leaders. The messengers are the prophets. Jesus is saying that you leaders of Israel have failed. You failed to care for God's vineyard. You haven't been using it as you were meant to. You've been spitting in God's face, murdering his prophets, John the Baptist being the latest just by the way. And now you're going to murder me, the last messenger of all, the son. But don't be fooled about the outcome, he says. God is going to bring judgment on you. This very moment is the moment of your downfall. And that's why, did you notice in verse 10, he concludes by quoting from Psalm 118 again, the very same psalm the crowds had shouted at him as he entered in Jerusalem, which we read before as well. He quotes and he says, haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. In the story of Mark, we've passed the point of no return. The time for secrecy is over. Jesus didn't intend this parable to be tricky for them to get. And they got it. Mark tells us that then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Not for long. Jesus has shown his hand. He's thrown down the gauntlet. 
Jerusalem wasn't big enough for both him and the temple system. Something had to give. And of course, over the next weeks, we'll see what that was. Well, to finish, there's lots in this passage we could reflect on further. It shows us something really powerful about human nature. Or we could think about the fact that it was the religious leaders who were the heart of the problem. Or we could think about the patience of God and his anger in the parable of the tenants. There's lots of things that might have stood out to you here. But I just want to highlight one thing that I think comes to the surface really clearly in this moment in the gospel. Sometimes, as I said at the beginning, people have all sorts of impressions about Jesus that stop them seeing who he really was. Christian people can just think of Jesus as, well, he's God and so he knows everything and he's perfect and he you know, just gets everything right. Others can see him as a kind of Buddha figure floating around saying wise things or maybe a, a half-mad but well-intentioned religious sage who didn't quite know what he was getting into. But the real Jesus isn't, isn't any of those things. The real Jesus is far more interesting. The real Jesus is scarily human. In this account, we see Jesus carefully carrying out a plan. He had clearly thought out in advance. It's three days of precision symbolism to set out his agenda. He stops his journey to get a donkey so that he can make the symbol powerful. He goes into the temple with a razor-sharp combination of Old Testament texts I reckon he'd been thinking about and mulling on for ages, or at least overnight. You know, on the first day at the end, he's there, and Mark says he looked around at everything. And then he went back, and he had the night to think about what he would say the next day. And then he debates with his opponents and tells this incredible story which is full of Old Testament themes and echoes that we've hardly scratched the surface of with Jeremiah 8 and 7 and so on. It's as good as anything in the Old Testament prophets. And then he has the punchline of his argument ready, this quote from Psalm 118 about the stone the builders rejected. You see, Jesus thought about how to use the Scriptures. He planned what he was going to do. Jesus was brilliant. He was, he was a tactician. And he did all this because he had clear and strong convictions about what was going on. He believed that Israel's leaders and the temple system had become corrupt. Instead of fulfilling God's purposes to bring light to the world, the temple had become a den of robbers, a focus for everything that was wrong with Israel. The tenants had become possessive and selfish. They'd killed God's messengers and ignored all his warnings. And so Jesus believed that the consequence was clear. They had brought upon themselves the judgment of God. God himself would come and kill the tenants. And as Jeremiah had said, give what they had to others. Jesus did what he did because he believed in the judgment of God. And even more powerfully, in the middle of all this, we see that Jesus had a clear conviction about his own role as well. We began with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where the crowds hailed him as God's king, 
coming to establish peace, and yet he was gentle and riding on donkey. Jesus wasn't going to be the one to destroy Israel's leaders and her temple and hand the vineyard over. No, he saw himself as having a different role. He believed that he was the son, the last of God's messengers whom the tenants would kill. He saw himself as the stone that would be rejected by the builders, and yet through that rejection would be the beginning of a new work of God. Friends, we need to get hold of the shocking, gnarly humanity of Jesus. He believed things and he acted on them. He thought and he planned and he chose the way that led to his death. This is the real Jesus in action, not some sham idea we've come up with. And so all I want to finish tonight by saying, it's not very practical but it is very important, is make sure you've done business with the real Jesus. With this real person who made real human decisions for real reasons, whose life's work was hard and intense and deliberate and difficult, and who believed in the judgment of God and so chose to go to his death for you. Make sure you've done business with him. Because this is a man worth engaging with worth taking seriously, worth respecting, worth loving, worth worshipping. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognise that our salvation not came not by some magic, not by some purely supernatural event, but by your humanity, your real life and real work for us. We thank you for the window we have into it here, and we want to praise you for it. We want to praise you for who you were and who you are, because we know that without it, we could never have any hope. We pray this and thank you and praise you in your name. Amen.